Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax. And it's not two hours, the next hour, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, I would love you all to come join us in the chat room. We have a great group of people in there. We have some great questions. Um, you know, if we can't get your questions on the air, oftentimes there's someone in the chat room who has an answer or two for you. So do come in and join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. You often have your guests actually show up in the chat room and answer questions as well. And you post earls when there are conversations that direct people to... Um, more information and so forth. Is that correct? Yes, that is. That's why it's such a fabulous chat room. Adds a whole dimension to your show. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to discuss framing. Frames become definitions, and often we act upon them without ever consciously recognizing their absurdity. An example may be helpful here. Think back to UK's Got Talent and Susan Boyle. If you missed this show... Just imagine a disheveled, slightly overweight, middle-aged woman dressed in a circus 50 house dress coming onto the stage to sing. Nothing about this woman offered the slightest hint that she could sing. The audience began jeering, laughing, and even the judges were exchanging smirks with each other while rolling their eyes. Again, if you did not see her appearance, just imagine the scene. Now, what happened next is a point of this illustration. Susan Boyle opened her mouth and began to sing, and what came out was astounding to all. The most mellifluous sound filled the auditorium, and everyone appeared shocked. Question. Why? Think about this for a moment. The expectation gap was suddenly exposed, but the question remains. What on earth makes us think a singer should look a certain way? Frames can be very subtle. Context often aids frames by way of forming definitions, and clearly the public attending this live performance expected something other than a frumpy-appearing middle-aged woman to appear on nationally televised stage. That said, when Susan Boyle was through singing, the crowd was absolutely raucous with applause. What would you have done had you been there? Do you have the same sort of expectations? The fact is, we all do. The economy of how our minds work gives rise to many shortcuts that are built upon our definitions, and they do indeed form our expectation and often our interpretations. Assume for a moment that Boyle had just walked off the stage when she encountered the initial grisly greeting. Do you think anyone would have given any real thought to the talent they just missed? Many times our expectations define our experience and thus our interpretations of events. When a politician frames another as a robot, for example, such as was done by Governor Christie to Senator Rubio during the final Republican debate leading up to the New Hampshire primaries, 
the frame may overrule logic. In this instance, Rubio was unable to overcome the frame, and as a result, he lost his second-place lead, no doubt in part due to Christie's portrayal. We shall witness many more attempts to frame competing politicians in a negative way during the months before our 2016 presidential election. Some will be successful, not because they are necessarily accurate, but because we may not take the time to understand the candidate and or the issues. Unfortunately, that does not lead to an informed democratic process. I have fleshed all of this out in my new book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, but if you haven't yet read the book, suffice it to say, this is but one of many tactics available to those who would like to shortcut your thinking. Now, for what it's worth, in my opinion, we should all pay close attention to why we accept any frame foisted upon a candidate before we discount their viability. This election cycle may well be the dream of a plot written by Ayn Rand, where we see extreme candidates of opposite positions, a socialist by way of Sanders facing off with a pure capitalist by way of Trump. We may be frustrated with how Washington is not working, but that frame alone may not be our wisest path to solution. And before any of you write me, I am not a Rubio supporter, but I do support an intelligent process when it comes to electing our next president. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I find this uh, really fascinating. I think it, it is important every time, you know, we have some of these that you do remind everyone, as in this case, you are not a Rubio supporter. It's not a case of supporting one or the other. It's a case of seeing the whole picture and making up your own mind based on all the information, not just how you've been pushed into a particular hole based on framing. And these days, especially after reading Gotcha and all the conversations you and I have, I see framing everywhere. You know, you cannot have an ad without there being some framing because the ad says candidate A is XYZ. Well, that means all the other candidates are not. And that's not the case at all. There, it's taken out of context, but you have this framing, so they define a couple of aspects, and your mind fills in the blank and says, oh gosh, uh, the other candidates must be evil instead. And Two things jump into my mind right away. The first one is, do you know that the majority of Americans still believe that Sarah Palin said, <laughs> I can see Russia from my kitchen? Yeah. You know, Saturday Night Live, put that frame on her. Uh, the second one is, just before we went on air, I read a new French study that where they employed um, verbal subliminal information as well as visual subliminal information to move people into an agreement or a favorability, if you will, as compared to other images that were being presented. Very powerful study showing that indeed that that's exactly what happens. And we both know, and we've discussed this before and I covered in my books, uh, subliminal primes of that nature uh, are used in politics, have been used in the past in several instances. And so it isn't just the liminal framing that we have to be aware of. It, it, we have to really pay attention to what's going on right now. Yeah, we do. And, you know, with politics, that brings everything to the forefront. But everything you're talking about applies to the rest of the world. 
politics just gives us a particular box that we can discuss it all in right now as well. So yeah, it does. It extends a whole lot further and it is all part of answering the question, who am I? Because you can only know who am I when you, are not, when you discover what you are Well, you, you know, next week's show is all about gotcha. So let's cut it short there and we will talk about gotcha in next week's show. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Jeffrey Mishlove, and we spoke of parapsychological phenomena. Janice wrote, loved your show with Dr. Mishlove. Tammy wrote, I love the show, and I purchased The PK Man right away. That's a great book, The PK Man. It's I, I put it on your yeah, uh, table it. for you to read. Sandy wrote, I really love your program, but I wish it was still two hours. Wish you had a television show as well. Well, thanks for the feedback, Sandy. We return to a one-hour format because it is very difficult to syndicate the two-hour show. Michael wrote, hi, Eldon. I'm currently reading your book, Gotcha. What a great, well-researched and needed book. One more gotcha. The all-capitalized name is not party to the Constitution, i.e., has no constitutional rights, only civil rights. And another, Washington State has two constitutions. The original approved by the voters in Congress, that is not used. And one imposed without a vote, that is used. The original is archived in Washington, D.C. Now that is definitely a gotcha, Michael. Especially when you research why the two constitutions all right, that's right here in Washington State, Ravinder. Take a look at no, that. No, that's fascinating. Teresa wrote, I've read hundreds and hundreds of authors. You stand out in such a big way from most of the others for many reasons, but one of the wonderful things about you is you are approachable and engaged with your friends and your readers. Love you and Ravinder. You both are a huge inspiration to me. Well, thank you, Teresa. We sincerely appreciate your comments, and we'll do our very best to live up to them. At least I will. I don't know about Ravinder now. I always do my best. <laughs> all right. That's all the time we're going to take to, uh, for our letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show. When Technology Fails, with Matthew Stein. Matthew argues for a shift in our collective course from collapse to global renaissance. On the practical side of things, as an expert at self-reliance, emergency prep, and survival, his writings and work help people prepare to weather the storms we are facing due to continuing climate change, global refugee crisis, ecological decline, and the potential for long-term multinational disruption due to EMP, solar storms, or pandemic, and I can think of a dozen other things. So, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Matthew Stein is a design engineer, green builder, and author of two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes, A Comprehensive Guide to Emergency Planning and Crisis Survival, and When Technology Fails, a manual for self-reliance, sustainability, and surviving the long emergency. I'm going to tell you, I have that book right here on the table. I have been through the book. And there is another book uh, that I, I, I hold in very high esteem alongside this. It's called The Universal Self-Instructor, but it's been out of print for years and years. However, if you wanted to learn how to make a log cabin or do things that they would have done 200 years ago, it's a great book for that. But if you want to deal with today's issues, in the, 
when technology fails is a must. Have it at your house. Have it ready as a reference. It's that kind of book. All right, well, Matt is a National Merit Scholar and a graduate of MIT where he majored in mechanical engineering. He's appeared on numerous radio and television programs and is a repeat guest on Fox News, MSNBC, Coast to Coast AM, Gary Knoll, Alex Jones, and the Tom Hartman Show. He is an active mountain climber, serves as a guide and instructor for blind skiers, has written several articles on the subject of sustainable living, and is a guest columnist for the Huffington Post. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Matthew Stein. Eldon, such a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, it's indeed our pleasure. I look forward to this. Third time is a charm. We've actually had you scheduled a couple of times, but of all things, both times we had natural emergencies, huge storms, power outages, crazy stuff. Did you bring that with you? <laughs> Remember, technology never fails, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it seems to follow me around quite a bit. Must be the title of my book or something. But uh, yeah, I've had been giving keynote talks and had the whole computer system that you know PowerPoints just crash. I said, "This never happens. How come it's happening now?" Well, because because <laughs> it was helping me introduce my talk, right? So. I guess so. I, I mean, whatever. I'm glad to have you. Finally, here on the show, you heard what I said about your book uh, in the introduction. It really is the kind of manual I think we should all have in our homes today. It, it's, uh, you know, you just never know when some of these things can happen. And you pretty well cover every possible event. Um, I also, Matt, have to ask you some things that before we get into your book that may seem a little, uh, what, off the reservation? But I think, you know, as we develop them, you'll see why I'm asking. First thing, were you raised in some religious environment that expected an eschatological event, some sort of apocalypse or doomsday? Not in the least. I was raised, uh, my mother was Protestant, my father was Jewish. Um, Between the two of them, they decided to raise the children Jewish, uh, but it was a very, you know, kind of standard non-religious, you know, pretty pretty sectarian, uh, you know, upbringing. And, you know, I got bar mitzvah and stuff, but it wasn't like, it was just just like the average Jewish kid that just kind of like went through the motions and it was tradition and that was about it, you know. You, you, you did right. it because you were supposed to because you, you know, because you were, you got a last name like Stein. And, uh, but then, you know, and, and then after my bar mitzvah, I kind of tried for a couple of years to be a good Jew and, I'd always hated, the, really did, didn't like Hebrew school very much and really detested the Hebrew classes. So for a couple of years, I sort of tried hard, and then it's like, ah, screw it, I'm really not interested in this. And I just sort of let it go behind me. Okay, so now this next question bears very directly on that. I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to read from your book for a minute and quote you. I do not consider myself a survivalist and have never considered writing a book even remotely like this until I received a complete title, scope, and holographic outline for when technology falls fails in an instantaneous flash during my morning session of daily prayer and meditation. Close quote. That's so now, 100% tell us, correct. All right, tell us about what this morning experience. Flesh it out for us, if you will. 
the nature of why, you know, why you're given this material if you're not at all oriented religiously, spiritually, or looking at some end days Armageddon? Well, I'm, I'm very spiritually oriented, but I came through it from direct experience. I've, I've had a number of interventions in my lifetime that had nothing to do with religion, but had a tremendous amount to do with uh, mystical experience and divine intervention, starting with the nearly drowning, being saved by an intervention when I was drowning at age six and had already given up and was floating to the bottom of a lake. Uh, when a voice, uh, the first time I heard the voice of spirit spoke inside my head and said, Matthew, try one more time. And at that moment, I thought, well, what's the point? You know, I always thought I was I was spent. I'd been trying. When I was fresh, I couldn't reach the stock, and, and I was totally spent. had water partially in my lungs. I'd given up and sinking to the bottom, and this voice commands me to try one more time, and I give one more jump, and it's as if uh, as I couldn't swim. I didn't know how to swim, and I was by myself. And, and it's as if arms grabbed me, and I soared out of the water and grabbed the dock and pulled myself up and coughed the water out of my lungs. So I've had quite a a string of knock your socks off spiritual experiences, but I've never, uh, but I'm not involved with an organized religion. So, starting in 1977, as a junior engineer at, uh, as an engineering intern at Plantronics, the headset people in Santa Cruz, I was walking down the street, and I'll get to the story about the vision in just a moment. This is kind That's of okay. like Go ahead. the pre-story. Pre I was walking down the street on like a lunch break, and uh, I in in the you know Pacific Garden Mall downtown Santa Cruz quintessential California beach town, and my hand vibrated when I walked by the opening to kind of like a concert hall place, uh, the Catalyst, and I thought, what was that? And I turned around and walked the other direction, and I passed this spot, and it vibrated again. And I used my hand, and it kind of zoned in on the stack of newspapers called the Good Times. Uh, sort of free entertainment rag in, in Santa Cruz. And I picked it up and, and opened it and opened directly to an article on a very powerful 108-year-old yogi who was in town, and people had all kinds of mind-blowing experiences. And I thought, whoa, you know, I'm a Jewish kid from Burlington, Vermont. I don't have an opportunity. These, these uh, stories, wild stories about powerful yogis sound kind of crazy, and I'm an MIT student, third-year student, you know, it's between before my senior year at MIT, very science-based, and but I'm thinking, you know, well, well, you know, it's my chance to see if this is all a bunch of bull or not, you know, and, and uh, so I checked it out, and I got my mind blown. I got, I received an initiation from this yogi after a few sessions of uh, group meditations, and it was shattering and devastating and wonderful all at the same time. Well, that started a, a long-term practice of daily prayer and meditation. So now fast forward 20 more years to uh, 1997, roughly Thanksgiving, give or take a week or so, and I'm in my morning session of prayer and meditation, and I ask the question I've probably asked a bazillion times, and usually it's not like I'm somebody that always hears voices and hears things all the time. It's on, on occasion I hear things. And I just ask for uh, guide, you know, guidance and inspiration, please. You know, very generic. And... At that moment, I got a bomb dropped in my lap. I received this holographic pictorial storyboard type of outline for a massive book project instantaneously dumped into my head. 
and my first thought was like, uh, no way, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm an engineer, I'm not an author, and I don't know all this stuff, I, you know, I can't possibly do this, but Jesus calls it the still small voice, the little voice in my head said, well, uh, nobody knows it all. And it assured me that I had the skills and talents that if I chose to take the assignment on, that I would get the inner and outer help that I needed in order to uh, complete the project. Now, I didn't just jump right up and say, well, you know, God talked to me today, and I've got this project, this cool project to, to help mankind in the coming difficult times. It was, you know, it was, it was sort of a, you know, one of those things you don't take lightly, like, I don't know, is this idea any good? Can I do this? You know, is it a crazy idea? Am I going? You know, what, what is this all about? So I thought about it, and I started reading in the best scientific writings on the state of the world and, and what was going on on the planet, and realized that things were much closer to systemic collapse, even back in 1997, than I had realized. You know, even even with my scientific training and, and somewhat of a neat background in ecology and ecosystems and interest in that, I still didn't realize how bad things were on the planet until I started reading all this stuff. And um, and then I ran the idea by Howard Reingold, who'd taken over from Stuart Brand on the whole Earth catalog, and he thought it was a great idea. My friend Rick Sylvester, who writes, wrote for Outside Magazine, a bunch of magazines, he thought it was a really good idea. And Eric Perlman, a, a filmmaker and documentary maker uh, that I knew gave me some tips in writing a proposal. So after a year, I decided, well, actually, it's a good idea, and maybe I can do it. And then I start reading tons and tons of books, uh, doing research and write a proposal, 200-page proposal. found a small publisher to give me a contract in, in year two. And then in year three, I put my engineering business on hold, racked up the credit cards, and rented an office in town so I could work seven days a week, 12-hour days, and uh, I'd allow myself to only work six hours on Sunday, so I'd have a bit of a day off. And and I finished it off. So about then I put a whole another year into updating it in 2008 with you know 50% more word count and read another 50 or 60 books in 2008 to do the update. So so uh, there you go. You got most of the equity in my home and three years of my life. Uh, into this book, so uh, so much easier for all you guys to take advantage of the inspiration. I, I got two seconds of inspiration, and then it took several years of blood and sweat and tears to uh, to make it happen. You know, I was going to ask you, where do you think you were given the book? But I think your story pretty well tells it, because there are not too many folks that would have paid that price. Uh, gone through that sacrifice to make uh, make it all happen, but I, I have to ask you also: Do do you ever? I mean, m- most people feel that they hear voices from time to time, guidance, uh, the still small voice from within. And some people call it conscience, and sometimes it's referred to as guide. I, I suppose it differs depending on what's being said. But it's not always accurate. It's it's sometimes you know it's uh, we we tell ourselves what we want to hear, and uh, it's very hard for a lot of people to distinguish the difference. Do you ever find that these whispers, this um, this what you hear, is maybe your own doing rather than somebody else's? Well, you know, I um. I've had quite a variety of experiences, and 
and it is the voice of spirit guiding, then it's always unwavering. It never flip-flops. When it's your ego, you know, it might, well, maybe this, maybe that, you know, it can flip-flop back and forth and here, this way and that way. When it's the voice of real guidance, it's always unwavering. Usually it's quiet. Occasionally it's not. Sometimes it's actually screaming at you almost because you're like in grave danger and you're not listening. And I've had it almost yelling at me inside my head. Like, you know, and usually it's calm. It's always unwavering. It never flip-flops. Uh, it can be hard to discern, and it's not something I hear on a daily basis. It's not something that I'm hearing like every day I ask inside and I get answers. You know, it's, I mean, it, typically if I really want an answer, I can ask and I can, can do that. I've, I've developed some tools over the years, uh, one I call pit of the stomach, for helping to discern, uh, especially like in a crisis situation. And, and it's a good it's a good tool to practice like when you're not in a crisis situation so you're familiar with I'm it. Gonna, but I'm going to have to ask you to hold it right there, Matthew. Sure. I don't want us to get kicked out by the computer, and we have a hard break coming up. Um, we're speaking with Matthew Stein about his life, work, research, and book, When Technology Fails. You've already heard me tell you, I think this is a manual that every household should have available. To learn more about Matt, visit his website at whentechfails.com. Or at Matt Stein with a single T, M A T S T E I N dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships. From habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. You have to know Find a girl Settle down If you want You can marry Look at me I am old But I'm happy I was once like you are now And I know That it's not easy 
to be calm when you found something going on. But take your time, think a lot. Why think of everything you've got? For you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. How can I try to explain when I do? He turns away again. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Matthew Stein about his life, work, research, and book when technology fails. To learn more about Matt, visit his website at wentechfails.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new, growing field of research with uh, practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In other words, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the music that you choose as important. All right. With that said, we just played some of Father and Son by Cat Stevens. Please tell us, why is this music important to you, Matt? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, I've all, I just always loved that song. You know, it's the, uh, the youth thinking to know it all and the father saying, hey, you know, no rush. Life's going to happen. Things are going to happen soon enough in your life. Take your time. Be cognizant. Be aware. You know, don't rush into things. It's, it's, the, it's the journey that counts more than getting anywhere in particular. And so I just love that song. All right. That's a good, solid answer. Let me ask you this, though. Before the break, we're talking about how you received this book. And, and and I think of that as, okay, It's this is an act of divine inspiration. At least that's how you interpret it, right? That's correct. So I have to wonder, what's in store for mankind if this book is the result of divine inspiration? I mean, what are your thoughts about what's to come and when? Well, people ask me that all the time. The, the When Spirit downloaded this to me, it indicated that many millions of people in the not very distant future would be needing the information in the book. Now, the book is the, described quite well by the subtitle, Manual for Self-Reliance, which is a you know pretty good thing to do in general. It used to be. I don't know about today's politics, whether that's true or not, but go on. Right. Sustainability. You know, how can we live more in harmony in our planet? How can we treat our planet with more respect? And how can we treat our bodies better? You know, how can we... Um, live healthier, more productive lives. So there's some, right. some excellent chapter on, on alternative healing and, and health. It's just as applicable whether or not the doctors are there. Um, there's a, certainly a lot of bugs these days that are resistant to antibiotics. So I deal a lot with how do you, how do you deal with some of these chronic illnesses and how do you cope with bugs that have learned to defeat, that have, have grown genetically to defeat all the best that modern medicine can send to them. Uh, how do how do we cope with those, and and then and surviving the long emergency. Now, from a scientific point of view, when I started doing the research, and and I wrote uh, I've written two articles that went quite viral on the internet. Uh, one is called "The Perfect Storm: Six Trends Converging on Collapse." And the other one is called "400 Chernobyl: New, EMP Solar Storm and Nuclear Armageddon." 
neither of which are exactly like you know your fun topics. They're not nearly as much fun as the Super Bowl or what uh, right. you, know, you know what the latest uh, hot couple in the country are doing today. But uh, but they're real. So when I looked at the scientific trends, you know we all grow up in high school math class drawing graphs and charts. And if you have a graph and it's headed steeply towards the bottom, if you don't do something different, it's going to hit bottom. Uh, it's been attributed to Einstein. It's not clear whether he was the actual guy or not, but this quote is uh, attributed to Einstein is, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Now, I say that's more the definition of human nature than insanity, but it is true that how can we expect a different result when we keep doing things the same way? So these six different major trends, they're all headed for collapse in our planet, you know, uh, between population, between the collapsing of the world's oceans, between deforestation, uh, between the, uh, oh, what have we got? Climate change, global weirding, uh, oil. Eventually oil will run out, even though we seem to have a temporary glut from fracking, which just temporarily boosted oil, oil production. And uh, and then there's food and there's population. Yeah. So anyway, so we have these six major trends. They're all headed for the wall. So the logical consequence, even without any major event, you know, no, no asteroid, no nothing, is that if we keep doing what we're doing on the planet right now, we're going to destroy the natural systems that make life reasonably habitable for human beings, and most of us are going to go away. Now, being sentient beings, we have the potential to look at these trends and say, you know, I think we got to think it's time to change. We've got to do something different, or we're going to soil the nest, and most of us are going to die. Now, unfortunately, often human beings don't really change until they're up against the wall and have to, and because of the nature of complex natural systems, and overshoot and time lag in systems talk from MIT, what happens is, is that the stuff we're doing today, you won't really see a lot of the effects for another 30 or 40 years. And so by the time things get really bad, it's like the speeding train headed for the brick wall. If you put on the brakes when you're 10 feet away from the brick wall and you're going 100 miles an hour, you're going to hit that wall. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, at that point, there's no avoiding that wall and avoiding the giant train wreck. So Do you think we've already come mind, that far? I think that we're very close to that. I think, put it this way, if we did everything right right now, I think we could de it, it could it could be a crash that's not nearly so painful and nearly as cataclysmic. I think the longer we wait, I think if we'd really gotten things going back in the Jimmy Carter days when, as an engineer and, and the number one student of Admiral Rickover, the father of the nuclear Navy, um, he had an engineering mind and he saw a lot of these trends. And he said, you know, hey, we got to make changes. But people, the powers that be, that run the world, said, you know, oh, these changes are going to be expensive and they're going to upset the status quo. Let's just keep doing the, what we've been doing and, you know, and, and screw those changes. You know, we're, we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing because that's how we got to the top of the pile anyway. So I think that our chances of avoiding the crash now are much less than if we'd really started working hard on this issue back uh, 30, 40 years ago. But... I think it's doable, and I think that human beings are amazingly resilient beings. Um, I think there's going to be, we're already seeing ecological refugees. I mean, the whole 
mess in Syria is because they had a four-year drought. Why did they have a four-year drought? Well, the climate's changing. So they have a four-year drought. People are without work. People are starving. They're without jobs. There's political unrest. They, they fled from the country into the city. You know, revolutions happen. So we're going to be seeing more and more failed states. I think the Syrian refugee problem right now is, is huge, but it's going to be ten times worse in another decade because of the natural consequences of human beings and the way we're doing business in the world. So it's an interesting time we live in. And I wish I could say that we don't, won't need this book in the future, but I firmly believe the, the logical, rational thing, just scientifically looking at it, is that we'll, it's, you know, we're going to need it. Now, okay, so you've written Noah's Ark. That's basically it. This is the Ark. If we all have the book, at least we have a chance at sustainability, right? That's correct. You have a chance. How many times do you think you're going to be updating the ark before the flood? <laughs> well, they're asking me to do another update to the book, but I, uh, while my, it's not super high on my priority list. While my wife was dying of cancer, I was uh, praying beside her and, you know, hoping for a miracle. I'd, I'd had miraculous healings come through me as a vehicle a couple of times in my life. And um, I knew at that point that it was, you know, she was dying without a miracle. So I've been doing a lot, doing a lot of prayer and meditation, and I had this purple and green light kind of came all around me, and I thought, oh, thank God, you know, the energy's flowing, and my wife's going to be healed. Well, it didn't happen that way. But they laid out the next four books I was supposed to do, and they showed me one of them I'd been kind of struggling with, the structure of it, and they showed me this incredible, they just just laid it all out for me. They, meaning dudes on the other side, the guides, guardian angels, whatever you want to call them, I mean, it's, it's not like there's a form, and it's not like there's a name attached to it that tells me who's, who's, who's providing me the information. And, um, and so it was really interesting to see that all laid out for me in, in meditation of the next four books, and it didn't include updating when technology fails. Uh, I, I will do an update, but it, it uh, included four new books. But the last book, it indicated the next three books would build me, and, and we'll see if this is all, if, if I'm able to manifest this or not. You know, time will tell. It showed the first, the next three books turning me into a giant, huge international bestseller, and the fourth book being the that the world will be at the point where it's absolutely imperative that we, the people of the world, take back our power, change the way everything's done before everything before it's totally gone and almost all of us die. And uh, and so the last book is kind of a how do we take back our power and prevent the end of the world as we know it, and and make a new world, make a better world, make a world that honors the planet and honors individual people. And nurtures them, and nurtures people, and nurtures the planet, and nurtures nurtures the natural balance of nature in the world. And uh, and there's plenty of people writing books like that. But the problem is, like like when I tried writing that book a few years ago, I presented it to a bunch of publishers, and they said, you know, you're no Al Gore, you're no Bill McKibben, you're not that well known. Your book, When Technology Fails, has sold more copies than Al Gore is selling. 
and he was, you know, vice president and then presidential candidate and mm-hmm. uh, won the popular vote. And, and your book is out selling his book. So, you know, how to save the world books are a dime a dozen, and, you know, we're just not interested. But what I was shown in meditation was you know, by book number four, they'll be interested. Well, maybe what we have to do is have that point of uh, near tragedy when, that it, as you mentioned, often takes before human beings are ready to listen or ready to make a change. Yeah. You brought up a subject, kind of a sensitive one, that, you know, I was going to ask you about, and then I said, nah, I don't know. But I, I'm going to, since you brought it up. You're a spokesperson for Alternative Health Care. In fact, you've been kind of a poster boy for this movement. Now, again, not meaning to be insensitive, but you lost your wife in 2013 to cancer. Were her treatments entirely alternative, or did you also fight the disease with more traditional allopathic approaches? Well, my daughter is a lawyer married to a brain surgeon, and... My wife had done a lot of alternative things, and our alternative MD was not a, you know, she had multiple myeloma, which is difficult to diagnose cancer. And he was not able to get it. He got frustrated. He is an MD, but he does a lot of alternative stuff. So finally started sending her to specialists. The first liver GI guy had no clue. The second guy was a rheumatologist. He said, well, first thing I can say is none of the things that I deal with. But uh, but she does have a match for some of the symptoms in something called multiple myeloma. But I don't think she has it, but I'm going to order a special blood protein test. So when it came back, when they finally found out what it was, I mean, she'd been in the ER. She'd had CAT scans. She'd had blood work. She'd had all kinds of things. And, and they said, oh, you know, and she's like, is it cancer? Is it cancer? I said, no, I don't think it's cancer. Um, I think it's muscular skeletal. Thank God. Thank God. It's not cancer. And, uh, well, it was cancer. Uh, and they missed it. And so... By the time they finally was diagnosed, she was nearly paralyzed and, and you know, wasn't sure whether she'd survive the next month. So at that point, we felt that we had to go with uh, chemo and radiation to start off. My son and I were both pretty convinced that we needed to switch to alternatives or her body would not hold up under the chemo because she's just uh, always been really sensitive to drugs and pharmaceuticals, not done well with them. But... My daughter was like, Mom, if you want to survive, you got to do this. This is the way you got to go. And I knew that if I pushed her to go alternative and she died, my daughter would never forgive me. And so I, and I knew, and I also felt she was so close to the edge that we had to do radical stuff to get her away from the edge. So, so I was okay with that. And then she was responding well and headed for something called stem cell transplant and seeming to go pretty well. So I, I, I introduced her to some alternatives, but she said, nope, if I want to survive, i got to do this. i got to you know, stay, the, stay the course. So we stayed the course, and, the, and I was like, well, you know, I, I, had, I had a lot of reservations about it, but, I, uh, but she was responding well and doing better and starting to be able to walk again and finally walk in the summer of 2013, walk like a mile without a cane or a walker and, you know, huge improvement. And and I thought, well, you know, we get the stem cells, and then we'll do alternatives, and that will um, make sure that her body chemistry changes such that she'll never get it. Well, she started crashing in the fall. She finally decided after her lung guy told her, you know, sweetheart, we can't heal multiple myeloma. We can only treat it. And at some point, you, you just say, 
you're done with all of these invasive treatments and you just make yourself comfortable. And she said, I think you're there. Meaning, he, in his opinion, she was ready for hospice. So her oncologist disagreed. At that moment, she suddenly became like, whoa, uh, let's try some alternates. But it was just too late. She wasn't able to eat. She didn't have the strength. Uh, she was like uh, 80 pounds. And, uh, and she just started crashing and she died. And so you can't fault the alternates there because she didn't really give them a try until she was too weak to really give them a try. You're, you're a spiritual person, Matt. You made that clear. And, you know, sometimes we fight things like oh, none of us want to die, you know. Um, there's that old joke, you know, how long do you want to live? Well, you, if you ask somebody 99, if they want to be 100, they'll all raise their hands, you know. But in 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 the long haul of it, don't you think, uh, or do you, I should say, think that these sorts of things are they're already cast, and uh, you know, if that's what's to be, that's what's to be, or or do you see it differently? Do you see that uh, you know an intervention of some sort or another would have made a real difference, and your wife would still be here? I think it could have made a real difference. It was. It was in, we did this, my wife was a master hypnotherapist, and she did a, and then she became a master at a process called the 15th step. It allows a person to straddle between the inner world and the outer world to talk to the guides on the other side, the masters and the guides. And they proved to me through, I was pretty skeptical. Often I'd wonder, like, is this just my mind talking to me and things that I've seen or heard somewhere else, that kind of thing. And, and they proved to me through a variety of ways that, that no, you know, this is, this is information you're getting that's no other way. And they arranged uh, uh, serendipity, serendipitous coincidences that were like a trillion to one. And it's like, okay, okay, I get it. You know, you guys really do arrange this stuff. And, all, and they proved to me that all serendipity in the planet is based on inner world coordination with the free will of the outer world. Like, you can listen to that tugging in your ear and go along with it, or you can, like, say, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to 7-Eleven right now. I'm going to go that way instead, you know. So mm -hmm. one of the interesting things is that my wife did this process, 15 step, and she'd go to the inner world, and she would see Jesus there fairly often, about one out of five times, when she did this process. She had quite the connection with him. And Long before this, before she got sick, she would when she'd see him, she'd beg him, like, please take me with me. I, I don't want to stay here anymore. I just want to go with you. And he'd say, do you love me? And she'd say, yes. He'd say, well, if you love me, will you do what I ask? He'd say, yes. Say, well, you have work to do on the planet. I want you to stay there. If you leave the body, you, you can't do your work. And so that was like, oh, good. Okay, you know, she's not ready to check out yet. And then she'd kind of reluctantly come out of trance and come back, and there'd be all these tears. And, you know, she just wanted the other side was so good and so wonderful that she just wanted to stay there when she was there. The last time I took her to the 15th step, a few months before she died, he said, well, when she asked about staying, it's your choice. If you want to come, if you want to stay, you can make that happen. If you want to come back, you can come back. Interesting. You, you, uh, you know, you're an MIT grad. Uh, you're an engineer. You're a scientist by all standards. You've written a book that is, uh, it's, it's all about technology and it's, uh, 
you know, it's very factual. It's uh, in some instances, it's kind of complicated because there are all sorts of electrical diagrams. Chemistry is involved. Da 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 da. This is a book written by a scientist. Uh, trying to tell people in simple terms how they can do just about anything in their life from, you know, raise their own vegetables to uh, generate power when the grid fails or what to do if there's an EMP and on and on and on and on. Right. Purify okay, water, now, make butter, spin, yeah, spin in Yeah, weed, all of it. Here you growth, go, right? All that stuff, yeah. Yeah, but... You know, smack in the middle of this story is this thread that weaves all the way through since your childhood that has a component to it that I guess we could just say is parapsychological. You know, it isn't just spiritual. Listen, when you were a boy, you tell about poltergeist phenomena in your home. So you grew up with poltergeist. I mean, how did you and your parents deal with that activity? I never told anyone about it. My oldest brother was a boy genius social outcast. When he was 13 years old, he came a third of a point from winning the state math contest with all the high school seniors. He won it when he was when he was 14 and 15, and then he graduated. So, I mean, just, just imagine a little 13-year-old kid barely missing out on beating every high school senior in the state in the math contest. Yeah. I mean, that's my older brother. Neither of us breathed the word of this poltergeist activity, but it happened in the same room. I was like 21 or two, we're at Thanksgiving together and we're talking, and I brought it up. And he said, oh, the bed shook for you too, huh? And the funny thing is, in our minds, we both thought, resonant frequencies, resonant frequencies. You know, it's like, bunch of bull. We just tried to explain it away, and we kind of freaked out and were quiet about it. And, and I mean, the bed would shake like six inches back and forth. I mean, you couldn't, if you got on it and, sh- and moved as hard as you could back and forth, you couldn't get that bed to move like it was moving. You're just lying in it. And and it did it for my older brother, and it did it for me. Bottles popped off windowsills, all kind. You know, it was pretty. Funny. I, I have to I stop you, Matt. We, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, we 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 definitely could use another hour on this show. Listen, in thirty seconds, tell our audience how they can learn more about you. Conclude this story. Get your book, etc. Well, you can learn a lot about me both as as my author's site, mattstein.com, or wentextfails.com, and. If you want to see some pictures of what happens in my life, there's links to click on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and and Twitter. On All right. And the book is When Technology Fails. And, I, again, I'm just going to tell you, I think every household should have a copy of this. I want to thank you for your work, Matt, and for your willingness to share it with us. Well, We've come you, to uh, the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again, our producer, Eric Ryder, who makes this all easy and all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.